all during that song, but <laughs> amen, praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the scripture tonight, 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. Good to see you on this Tuesday evening. Let me mention a few more books back at the Revival Focus Ministries table. There's a book uh, entitled The Faith Response. You know, we need to understand what faith is, because if we don't, if we don't have a right concept, uh, then we're hindered before we ever get started. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So it's vital to understand what faith is and how it operates. So this is a, a book that goes into what faith is. That's the first couple of chapters. And then how it operates. That's the rest of the book. I have alluded to facts and promises. I'll continue to do that tonight and tomorrow. But there's a whole chapter here on possessing facts. Another whole chapter on possessing promises. And then a couple of chapters on the prayer of faith. Literally the prayer of the faith. Uh, from James 5. And then finally on into the increase of faith. And then there is a uh, biography on the table called The Prayer That Makes a Difference. This is actually a biography of my grandmother. Uh, sometimes in our, uh, my messages, I've uh, mentioned stories about her while I was in a meeting in Phoenix. And a dear lady who has a publishing uh, company got burdened to write my grandmother's story. She's done a good job of it. And uh, just uh, 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 a lady with simple, childlike faith in a glorious, extraordinary God. <laughs> and uh, just answers to prayer. Answers to prayer, remarkable answers to prayer. And uh, so that's available. And then I uh, failed to mention last night when I mentioned the recordings, the two uh, vocal recordings of my wife as well as the piano recordings. They are available individually or you can buy any three and have a significant savings that way. In light of the matter of prayer, let me just mention, uh, my wife and I woke up this morning, some of you may have heard about this, uh, to the news that a dear friend of ours, uh, Charles Wesco, uh, he and his wife and family uh, just made it to Cameroon 11 days ago after three or four years of deputation. And uh, uh, that is an area of the world that's troubled. There's civil uh, unrest there, civil war. And a, uh, they were going into town in a car and a stray bullet hit their car and hit uh, Charles in the head. And he is with the Lord. And uh, so uh, I need to just uh, uphold that dear family uh, in prayer before the Lord. Uh, absolutely uh, Stunning, just been uh, uh, heavy on our hearts all day long. But these are dear, dear people, a brilliant man. And uh, so he's with the Lord. Amazing. I just saw him just uh, less than three months ago at our Christ Life Conference in Ann Arbor. He's come the last three years. And uh, what a heart for God. And so uh, if you uh, think of these dear people, even if you don't know them, uh, the Lord uh, will hear your prayer. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the Word of God tonight. Good to see you on this Tuesday night. We are in a series on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, on Sunday, we dealt with the ministry of the Spirit as he uh, really shines uh, the Lord Jesus in our hearts so that we are aglow with Jesus. And uh, then we looked at the five commands in the New Testament regarding the Holy Spirit Sunday morning. And then uh, Sunday night, dealing with Galatians 5, walking in the Spirit, accessing the fruit of the Spirit. And then last night, saw an amazing example of dependence upon the Spirit by looking at the Lord Jesus in his humanity. Now, Jesus, of course, is the God-man. That means he's fully God and fully man. And uh, that uh, when he was on our earth, he was all God and all man at the same time. 
And so he never gave up his deity, as we pointed out last night. Uh, but he did set aside the reputation of his deity, although he still was God. And he set aside using the attributes of deity, though he still possessed them, obviously, since he was still God. But he set aside using them in order to function fully as a man. Independence upon the Holy Spirit, just like we're supposed to. There's that life of faith. And when that really sinks in, the absolute necessity of spirit dependence, it begins to help us understand that what we're dealing with is not our best for God, but rather God's best in us. What a radical difference. And so tonight, let's look at the provision uh, for God's best in us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What is that talking about? I want to speak tonight on all new realities. Shall we pray? Lord, again, we need you tonight. And I pray, blessed Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of our understanding that we would see the Grand Canyon realities of truth that connect to these words that we just read. Lord, give us understanding of what's all new. These all new realities, the provision beyond positional truth, actual provision, this side of heaven. Lord, would you so convince us of the truth, of the sure words of God, that it would ignite faith in our hearts for this life of spirit dependence. And so I plead the blood of Jesus once again to protect us from the attack of the evil one who seeks to hide what we're looking at, who seeks to deceive us and uh, uh, to, to derail us. And so, Lord Jesus, I claim our position in you at the throne far above the enemy. And in your name, it is above all names I exercise your authority once again over the powers of darkness that would seek to hinder tonight and trust you that that not be allowed. Lord Jesus, may you be seen tonight. and May we truly revel in you and your provision in us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us know what it is to have something that begins to break down it begins to fall into disrepair, and in some cases we may try to fix it, and we may try to duct tape it, or whatever your approach is. And uh, finally it's time to, well, just get rid of that, and uh, you replace it uh, with something new, but then it happens again. But you know, in our text, there is a new that God gives us that stays new. There is a new that never gets old. There is a new that is fresh and ready and immediately available for every moment of every day. Our text says, therefore, if any man be in Christ. At this moment, everyone in this audience, every individual here is either in Christ or you are out of Christ. And if you have come to a point where you've understood that sin really is the problem, that hell really is the consequence, that Jesus really is the answer, and you've made that choice to depend on him to save you, at that moment, among many other salvation truths, the Holy Spirit placed you into Christ, you're in him. Now, if you've not made that choice, you need to make it tonight. But if you're saved, then this text is talking about you. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is 
a new creature. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Old things are passed away. Now, the verb tense that's used here is the fact of an action. It's in the past. It's tied to the moment when you believed and were placed into Jesus. At that moment, old things passed away. There's an event. Then it says, behold, all things are become new. Here the verb tense switches slightly. It's still in the past. It's still tied to that moment when you believe on Jesus and you're placed into Christ. It's still, yes, an event, but it is a verb tense that indicates that there are ongoing ramifications right into the present. There's our new that stays new. There's our new that stays fresh and ready and available for our immediate need. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And stay new. What I want us to see from the text tonight, that what God has made all new, these all new realities, he wants us to learn to take those realities, and then when we act on them, now it's no longer just us trying to act and imitate righteousness, but when we take what God has made all new, there is a provision that enables us for genuine, spirit-filled Um, imparted righteousness. And so God wants us to take what's all new and act on it. So the question for us tonight is, so what's new? I want us to see from the text tonight three all new realities. First of all, the real you. You know, when you get born again, the Holy Spirit does something inside, in the internal part of us, in the spirit part of us, that is absolutely remarkable, and this new you is actually the real you. Now, when it says all old things are passed away, uh, it it is something that is complete. Whatever that is talking about, it's not partial. It's complete. The old is completely gone. So what is that referring to? Then when it says, behold, all things are become new, that's what puzzles me. Puzzled me for years. I'm a preacher's kid. I probably memorized this verse, I don't know, how many years ago, decades ago. But I I had no idea what it meant. If it had said, behold, some things are become new, (laughs) that had made some sense to me because, okay, I'm on my way to heaven. But it doesn't say some. It says all things are become new. What is that referring to? It's telling us that the old is completely gone and there are some new things that are there and they're all new. What is all new? Well, we need to ponder this because a lot of times we read verses like this, we scratch our head and think, well, I don't understand what that means and we go on to the next verse. God wants us to understand. Now, the human constitution is made up of body, soul, and spirit. Let's talk about each of those and see what's all new. Let's start with our body. Is your body all new? (laughs) A quick response on that one. (laughs) Uh, You know, the body is not all new. I remember when I was in my 30s, and a couple of guys that uh, uh, were a couple years older than me turned 40, and they began to warn me, John, when you turn 40, 
There's just something about it, you know. Uh, life begins to fall apart, and, and you, you can't play sports as well as you could, and uh, used to in the past, and so forth and so on. And uh, they, they painted this picture, and I thought, man, I'm not, I'm not very excited about this 40th birthday thing. Well, I had my 40th birthday. By the end of the day, I thought, you know, I still feel pretty good. <laughs> uh, after a couple of more weeks, I thought, I'm still feeling good. Uh, a couple more months, I was still feeling good. By the end of the year, I thought, wow, those guys are crazy. I still feel fine. 41, still feeling good. 42, man, this is great. 43, I started to go. <laughs> and it's been downhill ever since, and that was over a decade ago. <laughs> now, the day is coming when these bodies will become all new. It's called glorification. (laughs) When mortality will put on immortality. What an amazing reality that's going to happen. That's a potentiality. But it will happen. But you know, that's in the future, isn't it? And what this verse is talking about is in the past. It's true right now. Which means when it says all things have become new, it's obviously not talking about our bodies. Because they are not all new. In fact, they're getting older and more decrepit by the day. Well, let's move to soul. Your soul is your mind, your affections, and your will. Let's start with the mind. Do you ever think wrong? I appreciate the honesty. Some audience should just sit there. <laughs> uh, you know, there are times when we just flat don't think right. Well, that's not all new. Well, let's move to the affection. Sometimes we use the word emotions. Do you ever get in a bad mood? I said that to one congregation and everybody looked at a certain person. (laughs) But you know, there are times when we just find ourselves in this bad mood or this dark mood. That's not all new. Well, what about your will, your volition, your chooser? Do you ever make wrong choices? Sometimes you just, you know, you make a terrible choice and you're thinking back, what in the world are you doing? That's not all new, is it? So whatever this text is talking about, it's not talking about our body and it's not talking about our soul because they're not all new. Does that make sense? So there's only one part of us left that this could possibly be talking about, and that is your human spirit. That's the part that's being referred to here. Now, let's take a moment to contrast the old and the new. By the way, let me warn you, the first point's going to go the longest. So when you see it running long, the the, the last two points won't be as long. Okay, Uh, but uh, let's contrast this old and the new. So if you can think in your mind's eye of concentric circles like a target, the outer circle is body, the next circle in is soul, and that smallest circle is spirit. That's the part we're talking about. Now, the scripture labels that part of us prior to salvation as the old man. Did you know the old man is not your dad? (laughs) Hope you don't use that terminology. The old man is your unregenerated human spirit. You say, how do you know? Because Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that our old man is or was crucified with him. Now, death is when the soul separates from the body. And it says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified, it died with Jesus. It's the same truth of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Okay, so what got crucified? What part of us died? 
Well, physical death is when the soul separates from the body. The best I can tell, that has not occurred for those in this audience tonight. So there's only one part of us left that that could be talking about. It's the human spirit. And the scripture labels it, personifying it, as the old man. So again, back to the concentric circles. We have body, we have soul, we have spirit. There's the old man. Now in your mind's eye, draw another circle and kind of overlap the two smaller circles there. That means the other circle is kind of residing in the soul and body levels of our target uh, concentric circle diagram here. And this other circle that's connected to the old man, we're going to label that entity as the old master. Of indwelling sin, what Romans 7 calls two times sin which dwelleth in me. So there it is, indwelling sin. Now think, we're not talking about sins, plural, as in Romans 1 through 5. But sin, singular, as in Romans 6 through 8, that is personified in Romans 6 as someone who is served. So that's why we're calling him the old master. Because prior to salvation, in the immaterial part of our being, our unregenerated human spirit, that old man, is in a relationship, it is in a union with that that old master of indwelling sin. In fact, we're chained to that guy. We are are shackled to this taskmaster of indwelling sin. Terrible relationship. It defiles everything we do. Everything. That's why man's righteousness is called a filthy rag in Isaiah 64. It's done in cahoots with that old master that taints it all, defiles it all, shows that at best it's self-dependence that can only produce self-righteousness that God calls a filthy rag that falls short of his glory, all of it. There really is no such thing as good works for an unsaved person. They're dead works because they are separated from God. God's on the outside. They're alienated from the life of God. But they're joined to that old master of indwelling sin. This is Ephesians 2.1. Dead in trespasses and sins. Now don't get the wrong idea. It's not dead in the sense of a corpse. It's death. Remember death, the physical death is when the soul separates from the body. Okay, so what this means is prior to salvation, we're dead to God. We're separated from God. We're alienated from the life of God. But we're alive to sin. Dead in trespasses and sins. The guy's reveling. In fact, we're joined, there it is, to that old master of indwelling sin. We're chained, we're shackled. And the only way out of that terrible relationship is for one of those partners to die. And we can't do this on our own. (laughs) But Jesus does this for us. Romans 6 and verse 10, what a verse. He, Jesus, died unto sin once. This is an incredible statement. This is different than Jesus dying for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Wonderful gospel salvation truth. This is Jesus dying unto sin. Now, that presupposes there had to be a moment when Jesus had come into union with sin in order to die unto sin. This is the cross. Crucifixion day. We read in the scriptures that from 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, this entire earth was darkened. What a day. 
Why was it darkened? We read that at the end of the three hours, the Lord Jesus lifted his voice and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, that's, those are strong words. Why did Jesus say that? It is because in those hours, Jesus, God the Son, but functioning as the Son of Man, as we saw last night, was separated, that's the essence of death, from God the Father. Why? Because he was in union with us and therefore with our sin. Ever wondered why the Lord Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane? We referred last night to the statement, not my will but thine be done. But often we misunderstand what was going on there. Friends, Jesus was not running from the cross. He came to save sinners. Then why the agony? It was the way of the cross. It was that for the very first time in all of eternity, Jesus, Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless, without blemish, Lamb of God, Jesus, the Son of God, functioning as the Son of Man, was separated from God the Father. That is the essence of death. Separated from God the Father. He was separated from the Father so we don't have to be. But he was separated from God the Father. Why? Because he was in union. He was in contact with the dirt and the stink and the filth of the entire human race from the very first Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to the last human being who will ever live. And that is why our scripture calls Jesus the last Adam. It never calls him the second Adam. He's the last Adam. All of the sin of the race going with him there on him to the cross. Friends, that day, before he voluntarily gave up his spirit, he cried with a loud voice, It is finished. And he died unto sin once. Now get what's happening here. In our text, it says, Therefore, if any man be, what's the next two words? In Christ. So, the moment you believed on Jesus, at that moment, among many other salvation truths, the Holy Spirit baptized you into, he placed you into, he immersed you into Christ. You're in him. And friends, when you got placed into Christ, you got placed into his history. Which means not only did you get a new future, you got a new past. Hallelujah, let that one sink in. Now, friends, you got placed into his history. You got placed into his death and resurrection and even more. But now think about this. Here's the immaterial uh, part of us, uh, that body, soul, spirit. Uh, we got the concentric circles. Here's our old man and this relationship with that old master. We can't get away. We're shackled. We're chained. We need Jesus to do this for us. And he died unto sin once. And when you believe on him, you're placed into him. Therefore, you're placed into his history. Therefore, you're placed into his death. And at that moment, the cross comes in like a giant knife and it cuts right through those shackles and you are set free. You are severed. You die with Christ unto sin. You are forever separated from that old master. That is a fact for every child of God in this room. Now, the old master still resides in our soul and body levels. That's why they're not all new. But your spirit, your core, 
got set free. You died with Christ unto sin, indwelling sin. You got separated. You got set free, liberated from that old master of indwelling sin. That old master may come back and assert his power, but he has no more authority in your life. You're not connected to him. You're set free from him. Wow. That's a glorious reality. So not only did you die with Christ, you were raised with Christ. The new man. Now in our text, that's the second phrase. He is a new creature. Literally the word creation. It is a word that involves a creative act of God. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit's doing some big stuff each time a person gets saved. Your spirit dies with Christ and then is raised with Christ the new man. Now think with me. That means the old man, the unregenerated human spirit, is gone forever. You cannot have an unregenerated spirit and a regenerated spirit in the same body. So the old man dies with Christ, he's raised the new man. Now the old master's still hanging around. That's why we have problems. And he seeks to to operate uh, uh, in our flesh on the soul and body levels. But at your core, there's a radical change. You're raised with Christ, the new man, which our text calls a new creature. Now what is this? Well, 1 John 3, 9 describes this part of you as God's seed. Let me throw a word at you. You'll get it. God's sperma. Did you know that when you were born again, something of God's own nature was implanted into you? God's seed. Now, think about it. God's nature is righteous. Holy, loving, good, and so much more. And that nature got implanted into you the moment you were born again. God's seed. There's the new creation. This is why Ephesians 4 says this new man, which after God, God's seed, is created, new creation, in righteousness and true holiness. Friends, that's the real you. That's all new. It's God's nature. That's why 1 John 3, 9 goes on to say that he, that part of you, the God's seed part of you, he cannot sin. Obviously, God's nature cannot sin. Now, we can ignore all this provision, and yes, we can blow it, and down we go, and we can sin. So don't misunderstand me. But God's nature cannot sin. That's why three verses earlier in 1 John 3, 6, it says, He who abides in him. There's your faith word. It's just the picturesque term for dependence. He who abides in him does not sin. Why? Because when you depend on him, you access him. And when you access him, he doesn't sin. So here we have this amazing provision. God's nature implanted into us. Now, what we need to understand is that that part of you is actually... Righteous. Not just positionally righteous. That part of you is actually righteous. Let me prove it to you. Look down at verse 21 of this same chapter. Here's an amazing verse. 
For he, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be sin for us. That's what we described a moment ago. Jesus on the cross coming into union with all of our sin. Now let me ask you. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Was that merely positional, theoretical, or was it actual? That was actual. He actually became sin for us. That's why the father turned away. That's why he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was actual. Okay, so let's read on the last phrase. That we might be, what's the next word? Made. Made the righteousness of God in him. Look, not just declared righteous. Now, justification is the marvelous truth that the moment you get saved, you're declared righteous even though your soul and body haven't caught up yet. But this is letting us know that there's a part of you that's more than declared righteous. It is made righteous. It has to be. It's the nature of God. Do you know there's a part of you that's completely saved? It has to be. It's God's nature implanted in you. See, that's the new creature part. Do you see it? Now, your soul is what is to be being saved. Theologians call that progressive sanctification. And there's progress through choices of faith. And there's great hindrance through choices of unbelief. Your body's not saved at all. And won't be till it's glorified. So stop giving it a chance. But your spirit is actually righteous. It's not just declared righteous. It is righteous. Do you know that that's why the Bible in the New Testament 63 times, that's a lot for the short New Testament, 63 times God calls believers saints. Holy ones. Why? Because his holy nature got implanted into you. That's why. Wow. If you're a child of God, you're a saint. Now that may shock you, either for you or the guy next to you. (laughs) But it's the truth. At your core, you're right. You see, we often talk about positional truth and practical truth, and by faith we access our position into our practice, and all of that's marvelous. But I want us to understand there's more. Between positional truth and practical truth, there's provisional truth. There is a provision. There is a part of you that's God's nature. This is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in regeneration. When he generates divine nature into you, God's seed, and that nature is righteous and holy and good and loving, and that nature has been there since the day you got saved, even on your worst day when you totally ignored it. But it was there. You say, what about the verse that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? In the New Testament economy, that cannot be talking about your spirit. On the soul level, yes, we can get deceived big time and we know that. But think about this, on the spirit level, you are not desperately wicked. On the spirit level, if you're saved, you are radically righteous because it's God's nature implanted into you. And if we were in North Georgia, we could shout hallelujah. But we're not in North Georgia. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, uh, <laughs> you see, this is an actual provision. We could even say it this way. Now, please don't mishear me. This is a sinless provision. Now, I didn't say sinless perfection. I don't know why people get bent out about 
been out of shape about that because I've never seen anybody that was getting anywhere close to sinless perfectionism. Uh, our problem is our sinful imperfectionism. But this is a sinless provision. It's going to get even better when we talk about the Holy Spirit moving in. But here's God's nature implanted in you. That nature is righteous and holy. It's actually righteous. It is a sinless provision. Now, obviously, there are times, far too many, when we ignore God's provision, when we ignore these new realities, and we cave into our flesh, and we pander to our flesh, and the works of the flesh that we saw Sunday night are manifested. And when that happens, we look like what we We're not, because unsaved flesh and saved flesh looks exactly alike. What a tragedy. And so in those moments, we look like what what we're not. But from God's viewpoint, even in those tragic moments, we're righteous at our core. That's how God views us. Friends, that's not a reason to go out and sin. It's a reason to go on to victory. Now, before we get to that second all-new reality, let's just take a moment to consider Satan's lies about the real you versus God's truth about the real you. Satan tries to get a child of God to think this way. I'm a loser. Yeah, man, I'm a dud. Yeah, I think I'm going to heaven. I trusted Jesus, but hey, man, I'm so I'm such a failure. Uh, you know, the other people, they get this victory thing, this spirit for life thing, but look at me. What a mess. I must just be one of those duds. I guess I'm one of those rebels. In fact, some parents unwittingly, sometimes Christian leaders unwittingly, side with Satan's lies against teenagers by saying things like, ah, you're just a rebel. You're going to learn the hard way. But they probably will now. But do you know if they're, if they're a child of God, they're not a rebel. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. All of us can disobey. We can rebel. But at our core, if you're saved, you're not a rebel. You're righteous. See, Satan's lies to get us to think wrong. You're a rebel. You're a dud. You're a failure. You're a loser. You'll never make it. When the truth is, no, you're a winner. Why? Because God's nature is implanted into you. And that nature is the nature we saw last night that was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. And that perfectly tried nature has been implanted into you. And that is the real you. So the real you is a winner. Why? Because he won for you. And it's his nature implanted in you. Here's another of Satan's lies. It has to deal with our identity. To get you to identify yourself. Let me word it this way. To define yourself by the shame and the guilt that you feel from that worst day. Satan's a master at this, to get us to define ourselves by the shame and the guilt that we feel from that worst day. Sometimes something we did, sometimes something that was done to us. And in our world of sexual abuse, this is massive. And Satan tries to get people to define themselves by this worst day thing. And that's not true at all. Because God defines you by who you are in Christ righteous, therefore accepted in the beloved. You see, the lie is for get us to get us to say, well, I'm positionally righteous, but, but not actually. When the truth is at your core, you're actually righteous. You're already righteous at your core, and you have the privilege of maturing into what you already are. 
You see, the lie is to get us to say that we're fundamentally flawed when the truth is you are fundamentally fixed. I said that one time and a young man burst into tears. Because he had gotten saved as a kid, was in the Christian school, rebelled, went into the world. A couple of years, really blew it. Had come back to the Lord six months prior to the meeting, but was being pummeled by the enemy. You're no good. Look at your past. Look how you've messed up. There's no hope for you. And so when he heard that he was not fundamentally flawed, that now he was fundamentally fixed just by being a child of God, he burst into tears. Well, no wonder. You know, the problem is these lies, and there are many others, they're kind of hard to kill. They're kind of hard to put to death because we use them as our excuse for being defeated. But they're lies. And they need to be kicked in the teeth. They need to be put to death. You know, my wife and I uh, moved from Chicago area to Michigan, the Ann Arbor area, in 1998. Uh, but we live in a fifth-wheel trailer. And finally, in uh, 2009, when the foreclosure market was popping, uh, we picked up a house uh, uh, in southern Michigan. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Southern Michigan. But at any rate, uh, we picked up a house down there. It's out in the country. Uh, that's when houses were going uh, for a buck in Detroit. Now, this was not in Detroit, and it was a little bit more than a buck. Uh, but uh, it was out in the country, uh, southwest of Ann Arbor, uh, south of a little town called Manchester. But... Uh, you know, we're, we don't, you know we're, we're hardly there because we're on the road and whatever. But, you know, I'm a city boy, and, and so this living in the country thing has kind of been new for me. Uh, we've had to learn how to live with squirrels, <laughs> like in the house. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, we're working on that one still. Uh, I think we might have it licked, <laughs> but uh, we won't go there. But uh, there's other things. They have these things called carpenter bees. I didn't know what a carpenter bee was. You know, I thought this big old bee was a bumblebee. No, it's not a bumblebee. It's a carpenter bee. You always say, what's a carpenter bee? Well, they got these power saws and power tools. <laughs> and they come and they drill all these holes. And we have cedar wood eaves. And it looks like World War II up there with all these holes. So I did what any city boy would do. I got, you know, some bee spray. And so I started spraying up the holes. And sure enough, they started falling out. In fact, 30 fell out of one spot. Thinking, man, you know kind of network do they have up there? Uh, 30 bees. Uh, well, when they landed on the ground, they were still wiggling around. Now, I didn't know it, but the poison was going to take care of them. But I didn't know that. And I didn't like it that they were moving. <laughs> I wanted them dead. <laughs> so I happened to be standing there that day with a straw broom in my hand. Have you ever tried to kill a carpenter bee with a straw broom? <laughs> it's like trying to squish a rubber peanut. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't work. Now, some of these lies are like those carpenter bees. They're hard to put to death. And here's what happens. If you don't put them to death, you'll play a cruel joke on yourself. Because if you don't put the lies to death, then here's what happens. You think of yourself as a dud. You think of yourself as a failure and a loser and all of that. And so that means when you come to church, you have to pretend to be righteous. And we all have our mask, just like people are going to put on tomorrow. And we put on our mask when we come to church, you know, you know, thinking, well, you know, I'm not really righteous, so i got to put on this mask, only to discover that down deep God says, you really are righteous. See, it's a cruel joke. I meet teenagers all across this country. In fact, I meet adults all across this country who have been pummeled by the accuser of the brethren. 
And they have bought into these lies so long. It's the fabric of how they think. It's their paradigm. And uh, they just view themselves as a loser and a dud and a failure and a rebel when the reality is no. Things radically change when you got saved. The old dud is gone and the new dud's not a dud. He's a dude. (laughs) Well, anyway, uh, (laughs) when you depend on the provision that God has given, you probably find that you're going to be healthier. You're definitely going to be freer from sin And you're finally going to be free to love. Instead of all being caught up about, you know, my cleanness, you can now actually let the love of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, flow out to others for a change. There's the first all-new reality, the real you. But secondly, now we'll just move quickly on these two, there's the real leader. You see... We touched on this. Prior to salvation, you were joined. You were in this relationship. You were shackled, as it were, to that old master of indwelling sin. At that point, it was forced labor. But through trusting Jesus and thus being placed into Jesus and therefore into his death, there is this dying with Christ unto sin. The cross comes in, as it were, and cuts through the shackles and you are set free, you're raised with Christ, the new man, the real you that we just talked about, so that, according to Romans 7, 4, you might be married or join new relationship with another, even to him who was raised from the dead. And that's when the spirit of the risen Christ moves in and joins your spirit. Now you have a new master. But he doesn't work like the old master. With the old master, it was forced labor. With the new master, he doesn't force you. In fact, if you so choose, you can go work for the old master. But it's no longer forced. It's now voluntary service. You see, the new master doesn't force us. You say, why? He doesn't want us to be robots. He wants a love relationship where there's the cooperation of trust loyalty, faith. Ah. You see, the old relationship with indwelling sin has been forever severed. And the new relationship with the indwelling Christ has been forever sealed. You got a new leader. And that new leader is the real leader. And he moved in to lead us, there's the right goal, and to empower us, there's the right source of power. He moved in to do it all. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Just like you have husband and wife, one flesh. You have regenerated spirit, new man, and Holy Spirit, new master, one spirit. By the way, God never cuts himself off one of the reasons why you cannot lose your salvation. (laughs) He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. It's what it says. Those are the sure words of God. Friend, when you got saved, you got fused to Jesus. (laughs) Amazing. So, let's take a moment. By the way, that's sinless provision for sure. It has to be. His name is Jesus. Again, we don't always yield to him. We don't always trust him. And down we go. But the provision is perfect. That's what I want us to see. 
Because if you don't see that, you won't be able to exercise faith. If you're not convinced of the provision, then all you're doing when you're supposedly exercising faith is wishful thinking. That's why we're spending so much time on the provision. Because this is what you have to be convinced of so you can reckon, Romans 6.11. You can allow yourself by the Spirit to be convinced of what is so. It's not creating anything. It's actually recognizing what God says is already there. See, this is the provision. And so let's take a moment then to contrast Satan's lies about the new leader, Satan's lies about God versus the truth about God. One of Satan's lies is to get us to think that God cannot satisfy me as such as some sin. As much as some sin. Now look, every time we presumptuously sin, we've bought into that lie. We're saying God cannot satisfy me as much as this particular sin. You know, that is such a lie. Think about it. You, you, you know this. Those times when the deceitfulness of sin is out there and Satan the deceiver comes in and, and, and it looks so good and you buy into it and pretty soon you find yourself all bound up. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Bondage is not satisfying. But how about those times when you actually did yield to the Spirit, whether you understood it or not, when you actually trusted Him to obey, and therefore you accessed the life of Jesus, the liberating life Himself, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, freeing you from the law of sin and death. I'm going to tell you, that's satisfying. Freedom. Experiencing victorious life Himself. Here's another lie. It's a big one. God loves me less when I sin and more when I don't. That is a lie. Now look, if you're in this audience, and there's probably many, I used to think this way, well, you're thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, God's mad at me when I sin, and God loves me less when I sin, and, 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 and when I perform well, he loves me more. It's a lie. And if that's how you think, then it's revealing your performance-based grid of sanctification your Catholic-styled sanctification, your self-dependent, self-righteous grid of sanctification. Friends, it's a lie. The truth is, God loves us unconditionally, which means, let this sink in, He loves us as much on our worst day as on our best. Amazing. Friends, obviously when we sin, that grieves him. Grieve not the Spirit, which is all that Sunday, but it's only someone who loves you who can be grieved. Get the point. But he still loves us as much on our worst day as on our best. Friends, when that sinks in, that doesn't push you away from Christ, that draws you to him. You see, the lie has God far away. The lie has God mad at us. God with the sledgehammer waiting to slug us when we pop our head up. Uh, The lie has God distant when we've sinned and all those kinds of things. But all of that's a lie. You know, the lie has God standing on the other side of our heap of sins. It's kind of like we kind of view God as, you know, the ogre school principle. Now, not every school principle is an ogre. ogre. (laughs) But there there are a few. (laughs) But... How many of you ever got called into the principal's office when you were back in school? My hand is up. Okay. There's a few honest ones. All right. there. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like we, we go into the principal's offices, as it were, and, and God is there on the other side of that desk. 
But his arms folded and a scowl on his face. And there on the desk is this heap, this stacking heap of demerit slips. And our name is on every one. And so we stand there trembling, thinking that we hear God thinking. And we think that God is thinking, (laughs) you're such a failure. You know, before you were saved, at least you had an excuse. But not anymore. And we stand there cowering. That's the wrong view. Please don't misunderstand me. When we sin, we miss out on the blessings that God wants us to have. But God doesn't leave us. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Remember that? He said, I will never leave you or forsake you, which means God is not on the other side of that desk. Let it sink in. He's on our side of it. With his arm around us, seeking to draw us to himself. And together, we look at that stack of demerit slips. And he says to us in kind tones, you know, that is quite a stack. Don't you ever sleep? But he seeks to draw us to himself because his blood cleanses and his spirit enables. You see, friends, the lie is that God is distant when the truth is God and I, God and you are joined. You see, and when he moved in, you see, it's his nature implanted so that his spirit indwells. The ministry of the Holy Spirit generating the nature of God in us. See, there had to be a part of you made holy so the Holy Spirit could move in. But the Holy Spirit moves in. Now you've got the leader. You have a personal guide. You have a personal generator, a power source. You know, I love the stories of athletics where a team that's not so good gets a new coach that knows what he's doing and takes that same team to the championship. I'm going to tell you, friend, we got the coach. His name is Jesus. And when he moved in, we have a perfect leader, and he knows exactly the place, the strategy that's needed for us. But he doesn't sit on the sidelines just giving us the plays. He comes and he gets inside of our uniform. He indwells us to actually empower us to carry out the plays. That is our new leader. And that brings us to the final truth. Your real response. You see, the real you, righteous and holy, the real leader, the Holy Spirit, your real response is the response of the real you to the real leader. See, the lie, to just sum it all up, is to get us to say, I want my sin. That is a lie. Because the real you is righteous and the real you doesn't want that sin. The real you wants Jesus every time. You say, well, why does it feel like I want that sin? That's not you. That's that old master. Remember that guy? You got severed from him, but he's hanging around in the flesh part of your being on the soul body levels. And so when there's temptation out there and you feel this pull toward that temptation, that is not you. It's that old master. This is why Paul said in Romans 7 that when he sinned, it wasn't him. That's what he said two times, 7, 17 and seven twenty, that it wasn't him, but sin that dwelled in him. Now, he's responsible, just like we are, when you yield to that old master, even though he's not our old master, but it's not you. Do you get it? Friends, 
your real response wants Jesus. You see, we think that we want the sin, but we ought to do right, when the reality is the real you wants the oughts. <laughs> what you think is wanting the sin is not you. It's the old master of indwelling sin. And the moment you say, wait a second, that is not me. I reject that. I claim my provision in Jesus. You will sense a supernatural lift. Hallelujah. (laughs) Friends, this is how it works. See, here's this provocation to be angry, to be impatient, to lash back out. And you feel all that rising in you. Now think, is temptation itself sin? Friends, it can't be. We saw last night that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. That's why Jesus said, pray ye that ye enter not into temptation, indicating that the temptation itself is not sin. It's only sin if you enter into it. And that's a wonderful truth. (laughs) Or we'd be pummeled for sure. Now, the temptation itself is not sin. You have a window of opportunity, a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where when that temptation hits you, and even though you feel the pull, you just got to remember that's not you. See, I used to think because I felt the pull, I must have sinned, even though I don't remember making a choice to. No, no, no. And friends, confession is for those times when you've sinned. But when you're tempted and you've not yet entered into that temptation, don't confess it. Because if you confess it, you're saying, oh, that's me, and you just entered the temptation. No, reject it. That's not me. I claim my provision in Jesus. I claim Jesus. Well, fruit of the Spirit includes long-suffering. I claim him. And now, when you respond to the situation, you have the Spirit of Jesus imparting to you the patience of Jesus, and the soft answer comes out, and it's real. Hallelujah. Or here's that temptation to to think wrong. Here's a billboard and something filthy and and the temptation to think impurely. You know, in the flesh we can go like this and we can turn our head this way while our heart stays over there. Or you can say, wait a second. I claim Jesus. You've just taken. And now when you act and look the other way, you're free to look the other way and be free from what you saw as if you did not see it. Hallelujah, there's hope. That's how you make it through the workplace and the marketplace. You take grace. You just take Jesus. See, it's walking in the Spirit. It's walking by faith. It's taking Christ so that when you act, it's not I but Christ. That's some of the how-to. We'll touch on the how-to a little bit more tomorrow night, but that's some of it. You see, the real you wants Jesus. The real you loves Jesus. The real you adores Jesus. The real you might even shout hallelujah, even in Michigan. I probably shouldn't have said that, but it's time to go past the noise of Satan's lies. It's time to go past the noise of our soul. It's time to go past the noise of this whole world down deep to your real response from the real you to the real leader. And you take that provision so that when you act, He empowers you. That's not sin management. That's metamorphosis. And so, let's wrap it up this way. God has provided an amazing illustration in the world of nature to help us understand the sometimes amazing discrepancy between who we actually are versus who we sometimes appear to be. 
Consider for a moment the caterpillar. You know, if we were to bring a caterpillar uh, to a scientist and say, hey, would you run some scientific tests on this thing? You know, check out its DNA, whatever. Uh, you know, um, tell us what this really is. He would come back and say, okay. Went into the biology lab, ran some tests, checked the DNA. I know this little creature looks like a caterpillar. But according to every test, including DNA, this little creature is fully and completely a butterfly. <laughs> wow. God has wired into this little creature that does not yet look like a butterfly, a full-blown butterfly identity. And because it is a butterfly in essence, at its core, it will someday manifest and display the behavior and attributes of a butterfly. Why? Because some of God's little creatures are a little bit better about depending on God's provision <laughs> than some of us. It matures into what it already is. Now, it's not going to help when it still looks like a caterpillar to say, hey, what's with you? <clears throat> Joe scientists just told us you are really a butterfly. Man, you don't look like a butterfly. You must be one of those losers. I've heard about your kind. You're a dud. You're a failure. <laughs> ah, I get it. You're a rebel. Oh, I knew it. You know, hey, you ought to at least fake it so people don't really know what you really are. So, hey, hey Velcro on those, these wings. <laughs> and that is the approach that some people take to their sanctification. When the reality is we have the privilege of taking and acting, taking and acting. See, what we're talking about tonight is already there. You don't even have to ask for these realities because they're realities. Now, tomorrow night we're going to see that when it comes to promises and potentialities, you need to ask for them. But with realities, they're already there. You just need to take them. See, it's taking God at his word so that when you act, it's not just you. It's now Christ in you, the spirit imparting to you the very life of Christ all based on all new realities through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who has placed the divine life of God in you and now he's moved in and he indwells you to be both your power source and your leader. Let's bow our heads for prayer.